Discretionary listener participation is advised for the following pro wrestling podcast. Hello, everyone. Welcome to another edition of the Stick to Wrestling podcast. My name is John McAdam. This is Stick to Wrestling, a podcast where we mainly talk about classic pro wrestling from the 70s, 80s, and 90s. Today, we're going to have part two of our review of the retroactive 1984 year-end awards. More uh, more about that in a minute, but... um. I want to invite you to join our Facebook group. A lot of great uh, pro wrestling talk there. Just search Stick to Wrestling, ask to be put in the group, and you will be put in. If you would like to follow me on Twitter, uh, just search John McAdam, put in uh, follow, excuse me, follow the guy who has the Sick to Wrestling logo as his avatar, and I talk about more than wrestling on Twitter, but there's an awful lot of wrestling. If you would like to donate to this podcast, uh, go to PayPal and donate to ProWrestlingArchives at gmail.com. That's me. I want to thank James Laffin, Nolan Lake, John Ware, and Jonathan Hammett for their generous do- donations. Uh, Mandy Rose, got fifty five grand fifty five thousand dollars for one person on OnlyFans. I'm like, where's my fifty five grand? So please hit the tip jar. Like I said, we do this every week for free for you guys. And now before we do part two of the nineteen eighty four year end awards, I have a disclaimer. We recorded this on Sunday, February the eighteenth, and Ole Anderson passed away eight days later. Um, we were critical of Ole in his role uh, in 1984 as a booker and promoter of Georgia Championship Wrestling. We never said anything nasty or anything personal. Every booker has a shelf life. I just want you guys to know, like I said, it was recorded before Ole passed. Ole, I, I get kicked around a little bit for being critical of Ole. Ole had many great accomplishments. He was a great booker at one point. If At any point you ask me, okay, make a list of your 10 top... Uh, promos in the business, in the, in the history of the, the business, Ole would be in the top 10 every time. I feel like he and Gene Anderson should be in the Wrestling Observer Hall of Fame. Uh, that's big. I mean, if you listen to this podcast, you know I'm not a just let everyone into the Hall of Fame guy. So, uh, Ole Anderson, thank you for all the great memories. And like I said, you know, this is just 1984 is just one page in the book of his life. He has a lot of great accomplishments. And with that, uh, one of my favorite episodes of the year, the 1984 Year End Awards, Part 2 with Steve Generelli and Max Levy. Let's do this. Thank you. Well, will you, will you hear my next one? Best gimmick uh, doesn't exist in the Observer or the WAN yet, or, the, or PWI yet. But who, Max, who did you think was the best gimmick of 1984? Uh, it's a toss-up. It's either the Road Warriors, uh, because nobody had ever seen anything like that, and they got over huge and were taking outdates and other promotions. And then pretty soon you started getting the copycats. And then also Sergeant Slaughter going from the you know, heel drill instructor to being, uh, you know, the great American patriot and hero. There had been, you know, pro USA wrestlers before, you know, going up against the different sheiks and Russians, but he took it to a whole new level. Agreed. Steve, what do you have? Um, turning, turning your standard one hour wrestling show into their version of a tonight show, TNT. (laughs) (laughs) That's your best gimmick? Yeah, that was hell of a gimmick. <laughs> it, it was. Wow, that 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 one came out of left field for me. 
Yeah, that's a deep, deep cut. Thank you. Thank you. All right. My deep cut was Mike Davis in Florida being hypnotized by Kevin Sullivan into thinking that he was the American dream, Dusty Rhodes. Mike Davis comes out one day with his hair dyed blonde, and uh, he got a, what is it, a perm. There you go. And he's wearing Dusty Rhodes' tights and his the same boots, and he's using the same moves as Dusty Rhodes. It was, now, and I understand this, it was great comedy for a week or two but then what do you do with this at the end of the day so they dropped it and i understand why they dropped it it was just fun to watch for a little while mine was sergeant slaughter i mean same thing you guys did towards the end of his heel run he started seeming like a not bad guy getting on the local promos at least and you know talking about how much he hated iran and hated the iron sheik and then when the turn came you know everyone just bought into it and it's like Max said, I mean, you had the, the super patriot guys out there, but never one that fit like Sergeant Slaughter. Like, you know, having Dusty Rhodes wrestle against, you know, Nikolai Volkov or, or Mr. Saito just wasn't the same as having, you know, a former United States Marine Sergeant Slaughter going after the Iron Sheik. So, all right, worst promotion of the year. This did not exist in the observer yet but max what do you what do you have for worst promotion boy i would say i mean i, I realize you know, I'm, I'm grabbing for the low-hanging fruit here but uh, i would probably go with central states i, I know that you know if you're from <laughs> if you're from kansas city and and you know missouri and and you know certain parts of iowa you know this is the stuff you, you know how on. bad it is but but you know the thing about it was i mean here's a a promotion that you know, it doesn't have much big name talent. So therefore it's got to do everything else well in order to make up for it. And it just seemed to do everything else just as bad to make it as unentertaining uh, and low rent looking as possible. That's a really good pick. And it might even survive my my eyeballs theory or my my spotlight theory. You know, I mean, no one saw it, but when you did see it, when you get, did get that tape of Central States, it, it's not at all entertaining, and the production is noticeably poor. I mean, the the lighting is just terrible. Has always been terrible for Central States, and you know, no one could just say, "Hey, we need better lighting for our television." Yeah, and the ring was way too small, and it looked like it was going to collapse. <laughs> and then Rufus R. Jones is your main baby face. So we, we've got some real negative stuff going on. I didn't even consider Central States because, once again, you know, the spotlight test, but it's a really mm-hmm. good pick. Steve, who did you have for worst promotion? I think it's got to be the Georgia promotion just for all the stuff we've talked about already. I mean, for them to kind of uh, go on, uh, you know, have lots of problems internally and then have Vince uh, take over their time slot. And then they, you know, go from maybe being a rival of Vince's, a threat to Vince, to being like, uh, well, we're going to restart the company. We're going to um, get on. It was like putting them on an IV or something. They, they came back on fumes uh you know, to get uh, the one last run that they did have. And then before you know it, they were gone. 
Yeah, mm-hmm. I, I mean, I don't even have, coming in, I didn't even have an honorable mention. And, and the WWF did some horrible things in 1984. But that Georgia promotion, even before Black Saturday, you know, Georgia was kind of hit and miss. I mean, you know, Ted DiBiase almost carried the promotion at one point. But there were so many bad spots. And then Black Saturday happened. And you have this this Tomco-level minor league promotion on WWF. WTBS, and you know we've talked about on the show about you know some guys just could not let go. Like Bill Watts let go as soon as he said, "I'm tired of losing money. I'm out of the wrestling business. That's it." But like Vern Gagne couldn't let go. Uh, Jerry mm-hmm. Jarrett kind of couldn't let go, and Ole might have been the ultimate guy. Like he, you know, it, this happened maybe six or seven months later. A little bit more than that, but he should have just read the cards and said, man, it's time to fold and get out of the wrestling business and, you know, maybe sell or share with whatever that that Saturday spot was, which had value, you know, do something with Bill Watts or do something with Jim Crockett, make it worth their while. You know, you can't be out there with that level of talent and, and, you know, and trying to be a major league wrestling promotion. It was just, and not only that, the promotion itself was terrible. Ole was out of ideas. He didn't know who to push. I mean, that promotion was a train wreck. And when they started off, you know, in, you know, the fall of, you know, late summer, fall of, of 84, you know, they still had some decent talent. I mean, they still had Jake, they still had DiBiase, you know, Ron Garvin was around. But then what happened as time went on was, you know, since you weren't getting the exposure from the 605 time slot, uh, you couldn't draw on the road the way you did. So the payoffs went down. So the talent went down. And then by the end, it's you know just a bunch of, of nobodies uh, to a great extent. No, it, it really was. It was you know just embarrassing for that to have been a, a national promotion. And like you said, Max, it, it didn't last long. The last episode that aired was the end of March 1985. Uh, worst feud of the year. This is an Observer Award, obviously. Uh, won by Andre the Giant versus Big John Stud. Um, Max, what do you got? Uh, I went with uh, Stella May French uh, against Nicola Roberts in Ooh, world class. I did not think of that one. At least Sunshine, you know, she was over. You know, I wouldn't say, you know, that she was, you know, I don't know who the gold standard would have been in a couple of years. She wasn't Missy Hyatt level, but, you know, she was fairly attractive. But now you had Stella May French, the lady truck driver who couldn't really talk and the matches in the ring were horrible. And uh, it was... They devoted a lot of time and a lot of prominence to it, and it was just bad. It got a pop from the crowd, but that's what they came to see. You don't you don't measure things by pop. You measure things by attendance, and that was cringeworthy. Man, if I could redo this, I would probably have Stella May in a couple of different things, like maybe worse gimmick. Uh, but you're right, that, that feud with, with Gina Hernandez and Nicola Roberts, I mean, it was just something you did not want to see. It was cringeworthy. Yeah, it just it was hard to get behind her as a as a baby face. I feel like fans, you know, cheered for her just because she was a baby face and she went against the heels, but I didn't get the impression that, you know, she was all that over. And it's notable that when Sunshine came back, she disappeared and was never seen or heard from again, as far as I know. 
and the storyline made no sense. They, they, there was no heat between Sunshine and Gino Hernandez. There was no was, heat between uh, Sunshine and and uh, Nicola Roberts. Like, you know, I well, think the whole Sunshine- thing was um, it was weird. It's like they wanted to bring Stella May. You know, Stella May came in when Jimmy Garvin and Precious were still around, but I think we're starting to fade out. Okay, and they realized, oh my God, what are we going to do? So they just put heat on Gino over Sunshine, even though he had done absolutely nothing and the two hadn't interacted at all. Right. It's like, <laughs> yeah, it just didn't make any sense. Made no sense whatsoever. Gino Hernandez would get on TV and complain about, you know, he's out driving his Corvette and this 18-wheeler shows up in his rearview mirror trying to run him off the road. I'm like, well, why? And they never really explained why. Uh, yes. Good call, Max. All right, Steve, what do you have? Uh, and this is one I didn't really uh, see for myself, but just reading about it, um, also from Georgia, uh, this is a long-running feud between Jake Roberts and Ronnie Garvin, and they, they make it kind of sound like it was the Vic Steamboat against Tony Atlas of that promotion. <laughs> it, it wasn't good. I mean, by 1984, I was kind of fed up with the whole Jake Roberts versus Ronnie Garvin thing. Is that your pick? That's my pick. And and because Max mentioned uh, Jimmy Garvin, I also want to say that uh, just thinking about Jimmy Garvin in in this time frame, uh, he'd be another candidate for my most embarrassing wrestler. Just all the jazz hands and the, <laughs> the get up and the feather boa. He, he just wasn't my cup of tea, honestly. All right. Wow. I I actually liked Jimmy Garvin. I never found him embarrassing. I always thought he was just, you know, this wacky guy from Florida who thought he was worth more <laughs> a lot more than he was. As far as, you know, quality feuds, I can't argue with Andre versus Stud. Uh, I mean, they started early 83, and I understand why they kept doing it, but they kept feuding throughout 1984, and they actually bled into 1986. So as a fan watching on television, that was hard to watch. Sacrilege here. I was getting really tired of the Freebirds versus the Von Erichs by mid-1984, and it felt like that was never going to end. Uh, Same thing with Dusty Rhodes against Kevin Sullivan. Just way too much for way too long. But ultimately, I went with another feud that had been going on for way too long. Ole Anderson versus Paul Ellering. Uh, two guys, neither of them are going to draw you any money, but Ole's the booker, so he needs a foe to go up against on TV to keep him relevant, and it was just painful to watch, you know, having uh, Brad Armstrong versus Jake Roberts, you know, for example, you know, Brad's on team Ole, and Jake is one of, of Ellering's guys. It was terrible. Anyway... Worst match of the year, Pro Wrestling Illustrated didn't have one of these. The Observer went with Wendy Richter versus Fabulous Moolah. Max, who did you go with? This was a hard one to pick because uh, you, know, you don't tend to go out of your way to watch old bad matches. Yes. So, ironically enough, you know, having seen just like a few clips, but having heard the legend of the finish being so bad they couldn't air it, uh, went with you know, the you know, Santana uh, Morocco. A match at Boston Garden. Um, I know that uh, Stella May and uh, Nicola Roberts, you know, they had a singles match at World Class's, I think, Thanksgiving show that was pretty lousy. And I don't know if this was like worst match of the year caliber, but, you know, Andre had a match with the Iron Sheik with Friday as the ref because Kamala no-showed. And uh, I recall that being no great shakes because there was nothing uh, I recall that Iron Sheik could do to Andre that would have been, you know, credible looking. Yeah. A couple of good calls there. Steve, what did you have? You know, um, 
<laughs> I really don't have a, a standout worst match. I mean, I I remember there were some really kind of bad matches with uh, Mr. Fuji against Tiger Chung Lee, <laughs> but uh, I, I I think they're they're best left forgotten, honestly. I, I mean that makes sense. Like Max says, if you if you know the match is bad, you've seen it once. It's forty years old. Fast forward buttons. That's what they were made for. Right. Once again, we're back to my spotlight match. Uh, only about fifteen thousand people saw Tito Santana and Magnificent Morocco from Boston. I was lucky enough to be one of them because I'm lucky enough to tell you that the match was terrible. It really was. I saw another match in Boston, uh, Paul Orndorff against Bob Backlund, which went to a 20-minute draw that was so bad, both wrestlers were being booed after the match, and Backlund was getting booed out of the building. And I remember just being you know, taken aback, like two years ago, thinking about where, even just 18 months ago, thinking about where Bob Backlund was, no one was booing him, to, you know, what had what he had become in 1984. But once again, only about 15,000 people saw that match. Uh, another bad one, I remember, Jesse Ventura, I've said this before, doesn't get enough credit for being as bad as he was. He wrestled Ivan Putski at Madison Square Garden, August 25th, 1984. You want to avoid that match, everyone. But I ultimately agree with The Observer because Wendy Richter versus Moolah was terrible, and it was the most watched match in wrestling history or United States wrestling history at the time that it aired. So no worse time to have an awful match, but they had one. So that's my pick. Worst television show. The Observer gave it to WWF's All-Star Wrestling. Max, what do you have? Um, I went with Championship Wrestling from Georgia because, you know, you had bad booking, no star, no star power, terrible time slot, uh, you know, bad booking. The interview set looked like, you know, only made it in his garage in a half hour. It's just he the did. whole thing. <laughs> <laughs> the, whole, the whole show was terrible. You know, honorable mention to uh, the Central States show just – for all the reasons mentioned, you know, terrible lighting, terrible production values, the everything about it just looked low rent. And you needed in a situation like that to make everything as good as possible, you know, even if you're on a budget to make up for the low talent. Yeah, it really felt like Bob Geigel just never, ever figured out that he was in the, the middle of a wrestling war that he had no chance of, of ever surviving. Uh, Steve, worst TV show. What do you have? Yeah, we, you and I have talked about it before, but that Pro Wrestling USA show really left a bad taste in my mouth. Oh, I mean, yeah. They, they, were, they were trying to invade the, uh, you know, the New York market. They get on WPAX. I'm sure they had to pay a lot of money to get on WPAX. And they focus on Bob Backlund and Billy Graham, two people the New York market really didn't want to see anymore. And meanwhile, as you're watching the show and they're having all these matches that they taped in Memphis and other places – they had Terry Funk on there. They had Nick Bockwinkel on there. They had really great talent, but they didn't know what to do with it. It was just, it was just embarrassing. No, I mean, I remember one week Terry Funk is the, you know, the happy, lovable color commentator, and then a few weeks later he's teamed up with Nick Bockwinkel and Larry Zbysko and is is evil Terry Funk. So you know, talk about not knowing how to book anything. They escaped me because they had, like you said, Steve, they had so much talent, guys that I had never seen before, like Nick Bockwinkel, like Jerry Lawler, uh, you know, like Terry Funk. It was at least. At least they had some star power and guys that you know I, I had never seen before. But 
you know, in All-Star Wrestling, WWE All-Star Wrestling was bad, uh, but Georgia was ultimately my pick, and nothing else even came close, and I feel like I've kicked 1984 Georgia around enough over the last past couple of weeks, but man, that was bad. And I mean, if 19-year-old me says, no, I'm going to keep sleeping instead of getting up and watching wrestling. You know that wrestling is bad. Most disgusting promotional tactic. The Wrestling Observer Newsletter had this one, and it was Blackjack Mulligan faking a heart attack on Florida Championship Wrestling, which kind of wasn't what he was doing. But anyway, Max, what's your most disgusting promotional tactic? Uh, I gave it to, to Memphis for building up and then ultimately paying off Jerry, Jerry Lawler punching Rick Rude's valet Angel. You know, they, they, they built up the spot, you know, by having her interfere. And uh, I think he pile drove her at one point, which, he you did. know, it's, it's a fake wrestling move. But then they finally built up to him actually punching her. And I think the idea was, well, you know, if you come into a wrestling ring and you attack a man, you know, then you make yourself fair game. But, you know, even in 1984, that's uh, not something they should have been doing. That is a good one, and I hadn't thought of that. And you know, the, I'm just—I remember watching this maybe 20 years ago, and Jerry Lawler is about to pile drive Angel, and the crowd is going nuts. This is something they absolutely want to see, and he delivers on it. And I was just like, man, the world has changed. And again, that would—that was 20 years ago. So, Steve, what do you have? I'll, I'll go with. Um... You know, Bob Roop had long been a long, well-known star in Florida and, and, and also throughout all of wrestling. And all of a sudden, they shave his head halfway and they call him Makan, Makan Singh. I, not, not Makan Singh. It was uh, – what was his name? I think it was Maya Singh. Maya yeah, Singh. I'm sorry. Yeah. I was thinking of Mike Shaw there from Calgary. But, uh, but yeah, I, I mean, it's, it's embarrassing to me to, to try to, like, act like, okay, here's a guy who's been in the promotion for, like, at least 10 or 15 years. Now we're going to shave his head a little bit, and we're going to call him by a different name. I mean, that's that's embarrassing. It was embarrassing. And once again, we're going back to the whole, you know, okay, when does this Kevin Sullivan push that coincided with the demise of the Florida Territory? Like, you know, where does this end? Um, Mine was, and you guys came up with some good ones, simply being Gene Okerlund in a main event at the St. Paul Civic Center, I think it was. It was either that it was, or uh, the, you know, it was Met Center in that case. Okay, Met Center, thank you. Uh, me and Gene Okerlund and Hulk Hogan teaming up against Mr. Fuji and George the Animal Steel. Like, yeah, I can see where someone looks at this and says, you know, oh, it's cute and we like Gene Okerlund, but you are really you know, putting forward the idea that, you know, this is this isn't just fake anymore. This is so fake that it's ridiculous and it left a bad taste in my mouth and i get that some of the vignettes were funny they were but you know like i remember just watching that match on usa network or wherever else it was and just cringing we've got the the little announcer who you know doesn't look like he's he's touched a weight in his life and he's in the main event It, it just crossed multiple lines for me i don't know this for a fact but and I don't know if this is something I came to a, a conclusion to myself or if I heard it somewhere, but I always heard that the idea was that since Vern would make a comeback every couple of years, you know, we're going to put me and Gene, who's bald and doesn't have 
any kind of a body at this point. Uh, you know, Vern was bald. Well, he had been for a long time, but he also didn't have <laughs> much of a body. And I think the idea was, you know, we're going to mock Vern by putting Mean Gene into the match to try to create the, uh, you know, the visual that, um, you know, Vern is just an old, washed up, bald guy. Oh, wow. I, I never thought of that. That makes sense. The fans around here, you know, the whole Mean Gene wrestling thing, I know there had to be purists who were just losing their minds, but uh, it got over big locally. That's the thing. You know, I, I do know it sold tickets and it got over, but to me it represented like something about wrestling, like, you know, okay, we know it's fake, we know it's yeah. hokey, but like another line has been crossed. Like, well, actually multiple lines have been crossed, by, for me at least in 1984 by them doing that. But but to John's point, um, you know, as as bad as seeing Mean Gene in the ring was doing his Vern impersonation, seeing Hulk uh, sell for Jay Leno's armbar about twenty years later was even <laughs> yeah. worse. <laughs> yeah, that I mean, again, by that point, you know, everyone was on the internet and everyone was was in on the joke, and I I didn't like it either, Steve. But you know, I, I kind of knew where they were coming from at least then. Like, okay, you know. The, the wrestling business had been turned into a joke, uh, what, 12 years ago. So, anyway, best wrestling maneuver. Uh, the British Bulldogs did a military press with a missile drop kick. Uh, that's what won in the Observer, but that's actually not eligible. So, what did you have, Max? You know, looking at it from a, a PWI standpoint, you know, Hogan's leg drop. You know, I mean, if he hits it, he wins. It's over. You know, the Iron Claw in world class with the Von Erichs was, you know, such a big deal made of it. And then more from an observer standpoint, you know, just thinking about Chavo and Hector Guerrero doing, you know, a lot of Lucha style moves and moonsaults and things like that, that, you know, really in this country, we'd largely never seen at that point. Uh, we're going to talk more about the Guerreros later. They are on one of my lists uh, coming up soon. Steve, what did you have for best wrestling maneuver? You know, uh, you and I had seen uh, Snooker do this splash for a long, long time. But when Tonga Kid started to do it, especially uh, later on when he was doing it as uh, one of the Islanders, uh, he would get such great height on his leap. I mean, he would mm-hmm. really get up high, super high. And I thought Tonga Kid was a hell of a performer. I, I think he... Uh, you know, again, I think it was like too much too soon with him, kind of like with Bigelow and some other guys. Uh, but I love Tonga Kid as a performer. I thought he had a great look and he was very exciting in the ring. I always loved the SST. Uh, I mean, I think mm-hmm. they were one of the most underrated tag teams in wrestling history. The, to me, the best wrestling maneuver that I got to see was when the Road Warriors put one guy uh, on uh, their opponent on animal shoulders or and then Hawk would come off the top rope with the flying clothesline. I, I thought that was great. The Doomsday Device. Doomsday Device. Thank you. And, you know, in 1984, it was something we hadn't seen a lot of yet, and I was just really impressed by the move, and I was also a little bit scared for the guys who had to take it, because sometimes they would, you know, be twirling up in the air, and God knows where they're going to land. But Worst television announcer. Uh, this was an Observer Award only, and it went to Angelo Mosca. Who did you have as the worst announcer, Max? Well, I'm going to preface this by saying this has, does not include his, uh, you know, being the guy holding the mic, doing interviews and in the local promos, but as an actual match announcer, went with Gene Okerlund because, you know, he got used extensively in that role in 1984 and even into 1985. Uh, and he was just terrible at it. You know, he would just spout off facts, you know, 
uh, you know, Andre the Giant, you know, um, seven foot four from Grenoble, France, or, you know, somebody would do a big move and he'd yell out the, whoa, here we go, you know, that kind of thing. But he just couldn't actually get anything properly over as the announcer. And I don't need my wrestling announcer to call every move hold for hold because, you know, it's TV. It is a visual medium. We can see it. But Gene really didn't know what to talk about or how to talk about what he knew to talk about. That's a really good point. Gene was a good interviewer, uh, but they really stretched his limitations when they put him out there to announce wrestling matches. Steve, who did you have? I know who you had, but go ahead. Well, <laughs> while I completely agree with uh, what Max said about me and Gene, I, d- I do want to defend him a little bit. Uh, I'd say that in the years to come, uh, you know, 85, 86, 87, I think once he got more relaxed and he was surrounded by a lot of his AWA cronies like Lord Alfred and Bobby the Brain, I think uh, Gene's overall performance was just outstanding, mainly as the guy holding the mic. Like Max said, he was a terrible announcer, should never have been allowed to wrestle or never been allowed to announce matches. But yeah, yeah, yeah John, you, you have it right. I, I do definitely want to give Mosca my worst announcer of the year. I just thought he was the pits. And if I had to pick a runner-up, it would probably be Jack Reynolds because uh, he just seems so brain dead doing those uh, Brantford, Ontario shows with Jesse and, and also with Mosca. He was just, I thought he was terrible. I mean, I can't disagree with anything anyone's saying. I mean, I'll tell you exactly what I have in my notes, okay? Three words, Mosca or nothing. That's how bad <laughs> Angelo Mosca was. But Max, you bring up a good point with Gene Okerlund. I mean, he was awful you know they do a big move and instead of putting the move over Gene Okerlund would just like like that would be it so I I mean yeah I now no longer think Mosca or nothing you know Gene was really bad but I'm I'm still going with Mosca he was I I, I don't even know how to put it you know go look on YouTube WWF All-Star Wrestling from late 1984 I mean Mosca you know he was noticeably awful my friends and I were laughing at him in 1984 like they'd be Reynolds would be like and on this show this week's show we're gonna have Ricky the Dragon Steamboat excitement and we are also (laughs) going to have the incredible Hulk Hogan he's a big man like that would that would be it, <laughs> and then the matches started, and like he was every bit as good doing the matches. Okay, best television announcer. This is surprisingly enough just a uh, an observer award because Pro Wrestling Illustrated had gotten one hundred percent behind Gordon Soley as the greatest thing that greatest announcer that ever lived, and I'm surprised they didn't create this award just for him. But Max, who got best television announcer from you? I went with Lance Russell and really you could almost consider him and Dave Brown as a, as a duo, just because, you know, great voice understood what to put over, you know, and, and being the calm and credible personality with all the mayhem going on in the Memphis studio, love Jim Ross as well. And glad that he finally got a chance to shine that year, but he didn't call the the action every week. You know, a lot of times it was Watts who was also great. Uh, but, uh, Uh, On the basis that Jim Ross wasn't doing it week to week, I'm going with Lance. I think that makes sense. How about you, Steve? Well, as anyone listening to the show knows, my my home base was WWF, and uh, Vince was my my number one announcer. 
I'm so embarrassed. <laughs> I'm going with Vince, and uh, and it's is a, a sneak peek for our listeners on a future show. John and I are going to hear the uh, Roddy Piper trashing Frankie Williams on the pit, and uh, Vince had the greatest line: "That's incredible." <laughs> <laughs> so for that reason, I give him number one. All right, I went with Lance Russell. Um, I thought, you know, really no one else is even close. Lance was great at handling, like Max said, all the craziness that went on in that studio. Uh, He was great at, you know, just getting out of Jimmy Hart's way when it came to an interview. He knew when to get out of Jerry Lawler's way, but he knew how to bring a young talent along like you know he knew how to lead an eddie gilbert someone like that who was just starting out um and then i said you know i it says look i'll I'll read right from my notes russell no one else is even close who else was even good dave brown bob coddle and dot 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 I left out the Mid-South guys because it was a, a rotating chair. Like one week you'd get Bill Watts and, you know, uh, oh, what's his name? Boyd, Boyd, Pierce. Boyd Pierce. Yeah, and then the next week it would be Jim Ross and someone else. So they were good, but, you know, I, I just couldn't put them up there, up there with Lance Russell. And, yes, Steve, you're right. Jim, uh, in my opinion, Vince McMahon had not gotten bad as an announcer yet. I, I, I don't think he was as good as Lance Russell, but right. – I'll have more to say about Vince being bad when we do the 1985 awards in about a year. (laughs) Now, Rookie of the Year. The Observer had Tom Zank. Pro Wrestling Illustrated, of course, had Mike Von Erich. Uh, Max, who did you have for Rookie of the Year 1984? Only put one name down for this, Nikita Koloff. You know, here's a guy that came in, you know, had that look. You know, he wasn't that experienced and maybe even not that good, but they protected him well and had a guy that they you know were ramping up as a major superstar right away. I can see that. Steve, who did you have? I guess I'll go with Nikita, too, just because, uh, you know, he had his limitations, but he really knew what his limitations were. And uh, I guess he's, he's comparable to maybe Goldberg in the early days of, uh, you know, Nitro when he, he started his emergence on uh, Monday Nitro. Uh, you know, didn't do too much, but what he did got over with the audience. So I guess I will go with Nikita. I I mean, when it, when it comes to this award, most years it's a tough award because you're a rookie wrestling on some outlaw show someplace until you get a call from Don Owen or Jerry Jarrett to come in and get a start. And usually Pro Wrestling Illustrated, it's like, okay, you know, who finally started getting pushed in a big promotion? You might not be a rookie, but that's how they decided it. And you really don't know a lot of the time when guys actually started. Like, we know Mike Von Erich started Christmas night, 1983, which makes him eligible as a rookie. But in reality, Nikita had not worked before 1984. And by the end of 1984, he was a, a, at least a rising star in the Carolinas. So I went with Nikita Koloff. Not, no one else is even close. And... You know, I, I sometimes pick on Dusty Rhodes on this show, but what a great concept. I'm going to have this great, big, muscular, bald guy, and I'm going to call him, I'm the American Dream, and he's going to be the Russian Nightmare, Nick Ivan Koloff's nephew. It's all brilliant, and of course it worked, because it was brilliant. Good call on that. Absolutely. All right. Most underrated... Now, both most overrated and most underrated, we're going to talk about most underrated to me. 
is why is this guy not getting a big push somewhere? Like, what's going on? Obviously, this man is extremely talented, and he's not, you know, he's not getting pushed. The Observer went with Brian Blair based on his work in Florida, and frankly, I can see why Brian Blair wasn't getting a big push in a, a big yeah, promotion. I didn't get that one at all. You know, I mean, he was a good worker, and no offense to Brian, but, you know, he just, I can see why he's on top of the card in a declining promotion. So, Max, who, who did you go with? I went with uh, Chavo and Hector Guerrero as a duo because, um, you know, I think they got a little bit more of a push in Mid-South into 1985, but in 1984, you know, they had a nice run in Florida. They made it to Mid-South by the end of the year. They were used a lot in Houston, but, you know, they might not... They weren't huge, but they also weren't small and they were incredibly talented and they could work the mic and made a great heel duo, but it proved also that they could work baby face. They should have been getting a much better push than they did. Okay, Steve, who did you have most underrated? Why, why are, is this person or team not getting a push? Well, um, I'm going to give it to a guy who started to get a push in the very beginning of uh, 1985, uh, which would be Arn Anderson. He uh, mm-hmm. had wrestled a lot under his uh, regular name and, uh, you know, teamed up a lot, I think, with Matt Bourne in his earlier days. And uh, he really made some good improvement in 84. And uh, by 85, uh, he was... Uh, already in Anderson, but he was teaming up with, uh, I think, Ole uh, on the matches in Crockett and was really doing quite good. You know, when Arn Anderson, you know, started wrestling in Mid-Atlantic and we started getting the Mid-Atlantic wrestling on WTBS, I remember summer of 85 watching Ole and Arn. They did a match and then they did an interview and I was just like, oh, my God, Arn Anderson doesn't suck anymore. He's turned <laughs> the corner. He does not suck anymore. Because when he was there in 1983 and early 84, I was like, this guy sucks. He's boring <laughs> in the ring. He's, his promos suck. And, you know, he just turned it around 1985. I remember, you know, once again, him doing an interview and me being like, wow, this guy's great. But anyway, I didn't have Arn as most underrated. I think they could have done more. Uh, Mid-South probably could have done more with Butch Reed, King Kong Bundy, and Buddy Landell. I think they all deserve better pushes. Uh, Bundy was in Memphis, as a matter of fact, and you know he was just too big a fish for that small pond. Then you get to guys who, okay, why are they not in a major promotion? You know, Eddie Gilbert, I mean, as soon as he turned in Memphis, if I'm a lot of promotions, I'm, I'm calling him up. Buddy Rose, I mean, look, I, I, am, I understand his limitations, but the guy could work like crazy. You can't tell me there's not a mid-card role, or maybe not even, maybe, you know, mid-to-upper-card role waiting for him in Mid-South or, you know, Mid-Atlantic, wherever. And then the ultimate winner, but for me, the winners, once again, Chavo and Hector Guerrero. If underrated is why aren't these guys getting a huge push? They win it. They get torched a little bit, especially Hector for being too small, but they weren't too small. They got over everywhere they went. They were a great heel tag team in Florida, and I will just, you know, I've heard this Chavo stories that he wasn't easy to get along with, 
But you can navigate that. And to me, you know, we're living in a world where they should have been in JCP starting in 1985, you know, coming in as heels, turning babyface and having, you know, big feuds with the Rock and Roll Express and then the Midnight Express. And in 84, I was saying, you know, when, when Chavo first turned, like these guys are something special and just nothing ever happened. Most overrated in the Observer, Big John Studd got that got the award. Uh, Max, what do you have? I went with, um, you know, while it lasted, Master G. You know, he, uh, you know, Watts lost JYD, you know, decided that he needed to get a new black superstar. And it kind of shows how few pro wrestling had managed to create that he had to immediately turn to, uh, to George Wells. I mean, this is a guy that, you know, they had him beating Butch Reed and DiBiase and pushing him like the next JYD uh, in September and the first part of October. And, you know, by Thanksgiving, you know, he's losing on TV, losing at the arenas and by early December, completely gone. I'd add to this as well, Angelo Mosca Jr., uh, who, you know, at least with George Wells, okay, he was legitimately an all pro in the CFL. Um, you know, Mike Von Erich, you know, not very good, but he was a Von Erich. You know, Angelo Mosca, you know, really had nothing. Uh, you know, the Mosca name only went so far, and it wasn't like Angelo Sr. was a legend in the Carolinas or anything. And Angelo Jr. just had nothing to offer. I have defended Angelo Jr. Mosca in the past on this podcast by saying that, like Mike Von Erich, they just pushed him out there way too early. He should have been working the opener in Portland and not, you know, getting that big push he got in the Mid Atlantic area. But I mean, I can't argue with anything you said, Max. I mean, you know, why are we pushing this guy so hard? It made no sense. Steve, who did you have? Uh, most overrated. It might surprise you my answer. Uh, so Pro Wrestling USA gets in on on New York TV. You know, it's the first time uh, NWA AWA team up together. They're getting on New York TV. They're going to try to fend off Vince. Who did they make their primary person on their TV show? Bob Backlund. So just for that alone, he's my most overrated. He should not have even been on the show. I mean, if they had any sense whatsoever, they would have known that New York did not want to see any more Bob Backlund. I mean, if they had any awareness of what was going on in WWF, his entire 84 in WWF was just so forgettable. They should have just, you know, you know somebody, somebody should have told them he just was unwatchable anymore and, and unpushable anymore, but nobody knew. No, they didn't. You know, Bob Backlund, I I hate to keep kicking Bob around. His only role after his run with the WWF was to show up and, you know, go around the horn in the big cities, losing conclusively to Ric Flair. And then once he's done doing that, like go to the Mid-Atlantic area and lose conclusively to United States champion Dick Slater and then maybe go into Mid-South and lose to Ted DiBiase. His his only value is going to be to put guys over, you know, based on his former glory. So at the same time, you know, I, I Max made a good one. With Master G, like you know, why are they pushing this guy? I, I, you know, I knew why, but it was a bad idea. John Studd, I never had to ask why are they pushing this guy because he's big and people want to see him against Andre the Giant. Uh, Backland, I, I think they pushed him way too hard. I mean, you know, don't you guys know why he's available? Kind of thing. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but I could see him once again. He had that value of okay. 
he's if you don't have him in the main event you can do something with Bob in the Northeast, theoretically, but that's not what they did. They made him the the centerpiece of the promotion. Ultimately, once again, another guy I I keep beating on, Paul Ellering, was you know he was such a bad manager and he got so much TV time in Georgia. You know, if you want to call overrated, why are they pushing this guy? I can't imagine why they were pushing Paul Ellering as hard as they were. And again, this is coming off in 83 where they pushed him to death. So it was even worse in 84. Best Flying Wrestler, the Dynamite Kid, gets that for the Observer, no PWI. I disagree with Dynamite Kid based, uh, once again, on my spotlight factor. If you didn't see him in Calgary, you didn't see him. And Calgary was very much, it was a step below Portland or Memphis. Uh, Max, who did you have? It's tough because, you know, what we consider a flying wrestler now compared to then is so changed. But uh, I went with, um, you know, the, the Guerreros and, you know, honorable mention to Tonga Kid. The Guerreros are a good pick, and it needs to be mentioned, too, that you're right. You know, a flying wrestler, even five years later, was way different than it was in 1984. I can't really think of any, you know, high flyers that were out there. You know, maybe the Guerreros, but, you know, it just hadn't, the American style hadn't adapted to that yet. Steve, who did you have? I'm going to go with Tiger Kid again, just because he was, you know, super young looking. Uh, he was, you know, I, I know Minuto, Minuto was big back then. You know, he could tie <laughs> in with that crowd, uh, getting the young people in, interested, and he could do that great leap that he could do. Uh, I'll just go with him. A Minuto mentioned. I remember first reading about Minuto, and it's like, okay, when you get to the to a certain age, they kick you out of the band. And I was like, <laughs> what? <laughs> Ah, that blew my mind. But anyway, um, some great picks out there, but I ultimately went with, and, and he was already past his peak in the ring and, and high-flying, but the guy who probably impressed me the most, like, okay, he did this, did this one move maneuver, wow, that was cool, was Kevin Von Erich. And again, I understand 84 Kevin Von Erich was not 1980, 1981 Kevin Von Erich, but I just couldn't think of anybody else. All right, best brawler. The Observer gave it to Bruiser Brody. Max, who did you have for best brawler? I went with Terry Gordy because, uh, you know, he did a lot of brawling with uh, Kamala during the Freebirds Devastation feud. And then, you know, the WWF thing crashed and burned. He came back and had that wild feud with Keller Khan, you know, including the big bloody Thanksgiving Texas death match with Kerry as the ref. Brody was a great brawler, but... And he was in the AWA a ton, but he also spent so much time, uh, you know, with all Japan that, you know, it's like the his American commitments were were kind of in second place. That's the thing. If we're not including, you know, uh, Japan and Mexico, we can't include what he did in Japan. So, you know, based on what he did in the AWA, like I can't consider consider that number one. But Steve, who did you have? I guess. Uh... You know, with that being said, I would give it to uh, Slaughter just because, uh, you know, those brawls with, with Sheik were awesome. And uh, it, it was really uh, some of the best, uh, bloodiest matches WWF had seen going back to the Paris and Slaughter bloodbath matches. So uh, I guess I'll give it to Slaughter. I can see Sergeant Slaughter, and, mm-hmm. you know, I think I've mentioned this, or I will mention it in the National Expansion. You know, we've 
had access to the Madison Square Garden match from, uh, I think it was June 4th, uh, 19... 84, where they had that great uh, match. What was it, Steve? The uh, was it a Texas Death Match? What was it? Uh, yeah, I know what you mean. It was like boot camp um, match. Boot camp match. Boot camp. That's it. Yeah. And we had the same match in Boston, and it was an incredible match. It was a great brawl. I also want to give a shout out, believe it or not, and I patted them on the back previously on this recording to the new fabulous ones, Tommy Rich and Eddie Gilbert. I know some of you going, ah, but they had some really good brawls in Memphis, most notably against the pretty young things. But uh, ultimately, it's Terry Gordy for me. I mean, like Max said, he had so many great brawls in the world class, you know, including the Bad Street match in Texas Stadium where he sold his ass off for Fritz, the Killer Con match, you know, any random Von Erich match. I mean, Terry Gordy was a great brawler, and I'm going with him. Good call. Yes. All right. Best technical wrestler. The Observer went with Dynamite Kid and Masa Saito as a tie. Uh, no Pro Wrestling Illustrated. It's kind of funny because I don't exactly consider Dynamite Kid and Masa Saito like, you know, very comparable in the ring at all. But, I mean, Max, who'd you go with? Best technical wrestler. I went with DiBiase, Ted DiBiase. Um, Good call. You know, that, thought about Flair, Steamboat, Bachwinkle, but I don't know. For some reason, Ted just rose to the top. Uh, that, that's a really good call, Steve. Who did you have? Um, a guy I always just think of is just, uh, you know, a technician in the ring would be uh, Bob Orton Jr. I just love love his work. And... I can see that. Mm-hmm. All right. I actually went with one guy who needed a shout-out. Jack Briscoe was still, I mean, amazing in the ring. And little did we know that, you know, by the end of 1984, he and Jerry are having that great run in the WWF, and guess what? His career would be over in a few weeks. But Jack Briscoe was noticeably great. He had that match in Baltimore against Ric Flair, which was phenomenal. But ultimately, I'm going with Ric Flair. Um, I know he's not known as a technician, but if you break it down, you know he can wrestle any way, any style you ask for. And I just thought, you know, when it came down to you know. Basic holds and basic mat work. Flair was even better than Briscoe by 1984, so I'm going with him. Most improved. Now, two very different criteria. Uh, The Observer is going with someone who got better in the ring from 19, you know, from the beginning of 1984 until the end. Pro Wrestling Illustrated really is just going with someone who who is getting pushed way harder than they were a year ago. Max, who do you have? I went with Magnum TA because, you know, he was a mid-card guy from Florida. Uh, Granted, his push started ramping up in the latter part of 1983 and in Mid-South, but, you know, ultimately he started off the year as kind of a tag team mid-carder, the young guy teaming with the old guy. And as the year went on, he became more and more of a uh, superstar, better in the ring, you know, just better at carrying himself like a superstar. And then, you know, as the year was ending, off to uh, Crockett and off to the biggest stardom he would have. Magnum is a really good call, and it was almost like, you know, I've talked about Ole Anderson, how he could not identify pushable talent. Bill Watts absolutely 
pegged Magnum TA as, okay, here's a guy I can build up, I can push, and I can build around. And, you know, Watts, Watts made the right call. And, you know, unfortunately for Watts, as soon as he got Magnum where he needed Magnum to be, the phone rang and, you know, his hometown promotion, Mid-Atlantic Wrestling, called. And Watts said he knew, you know, right away he had no chance to retain Magnum TA. But, Steve, who did you have? I went with uh, Hercules Hernandez, who um, I, I remember seeing uh, – old clip of him in his very early years he was doing jobs for dick the bruiser in wwa and he really had come a long way and had really improved and he'd be in wwf another a year or 15 months or so so he he had really his stock had really risen i can see yeah a good call very good pick most improved, the Observer went with George Takano with a Cobra, who had gotten better in the ring during 1984. Pro Wrestling Illustrated went with Billy Jack Haynes, which is kind of the ultimate Pro Wrestling Illustrated most improved. He went from being a star in Portland to being a star in Florida, and now that that kind of proves in a kayfabe way that hey this guy has made it he's no longer a small fish in a big pond mine for both was tully blanchard tully blanchard i always looked at as a guy in southwest championship wrestling like you know once again big fish small pond if he ever came to the WWF or the Carolinas, he'd be a mid-card guy. No way, man. Tully really surprised me by being uh, an integral part of the super feud, as they called it. Uh, Tully Blanchard and the newly turned Wahoo McDaniel against Ric Flair and Dusty Rhodes. I'm like, okay, we've got three superstars in here and the guy from Southwest. But Tully managed to cover to carry his end of the load and he got way better in the ring, too. And, and good for Tully. I mean, I remember an interview with him. He said he drove an old car from San Antonio to Charlotte and he barely had any money. He said by the end of 1984, he had a new house and a nice car. So wrestling success, success yeah. story right there. Yeah, you came a long way. Definitely. And again, I he was someone, you know, uh, January 1st, 1984. I'm like, this guy's not going to be a big deal. Well, Tully proved the world wrong. Good for him. Feud of the year, The Observer gives it to the Freebirds and the Von Ericks. Pro Wrestling Illustrated did not have Feud of the Year. Max, what do you have? You know, people might have been getting tired of it, but Freebirds Von Erics was still drawing big time uh, in uh, Texas in world class. And then, you know, got to look as well at, you know, Sergeant Slaughter and the Iron Sheik, which, you know, it's odd. You know, if you really think about it, you know, Hulk Hogan was all over the place for the WWF, but they didn't really feud him with anybody. No, they did uh, not. On any grand scale. So this was really the feud of the year in the WWF. No, I, I agree, and I, I point that out, that Hulk Hogan was just going going out there with, you know, random heel of the month all of 1984. Like, they didn't book any real angles with him or anything, and unless you're counting him winning the, the title from the Iron Sheik. You know, he just did his thing, uh, taking on Challenger of the Night, and it worked. So, who did you have, Steve? Feud of the Year. I'll, I'll stay in-house with WWF. I, I'll give it the best feud to Slaughter against Sheik. 
I'll give a second to Piper against Snuka and uh, to what you guys were just saying. Even though Hogan wasn't really involved in a, a feud feud, so to speak, the promotion is we're going toward the end of the year. They were really aiming toward Hogan versus Piper. So just that the kind of birth pangs of their feud, I would put in the third place spot. You know, it's true that WWF, with the exception of two matches in Boston, which I got to see, kind of kept Piper and Hogan away from each other. And you think about it, in April, May 1984, I'm like, okay, why are we not doing Hulk Hogan versus Roddy Piper? Well, duh, they're saving it, and <laughs> they're, they're sparing Roddy <laughs> Piper from having to do any kind of a job, so it makes sense. Uh, my honorable mentions, there are some good feuds in 1984. Slaughter versus The Sheik absolutely deserves consideration. The Midnight Express against the Rock and Roll Express, I mean, what a a natural, organic, and excellent feud that was. Uh, Kevin Von Erich against Chris Adams. I loved that feud. I loved the way it started. If you listen to me on this show, you know that um, I always like it when if there's a baby face who turns heel, you at least understand why he did what he did when in, in the heat of the moment. And I understand why Chris Adams super kicked Kevin Von Erich, which is what got this all started. And of course, then Chris Adams starts, you know, crossing one line after another. But I, I always liked the Gary Hart, Chris Adams dynamic in world class. Then we have Bill Watts against Jim Cornette, which was phenomenal. But in my opinion, the greatest feud in wrestling history, the smartest feud, the most logical feud, the match where every step or the feud where every step along the way makes sense and makes it more compelling. And it's on Peacock, ladies and gentlemen, Mid-South Wrestling 1984. Start watching right around the middle of November of 1983. Magnum TA against Mr. Wrestling 2. Again, best feud ever. Uh, and every aspect of it makes sense. I won't spoil it for those who you know haven't seen it, but you do know that Mr. Wrestling 2 takes on a, a rising star in Magnum TA, and then he becomes resentful when the student begins outperforming the teacher, and then we go from there, and then Mr. Wrestling 2 finds a new student who is going to be a 100% loyal and honorable and will respect all his wishes and it didn't exactly work out that way it was a phenomenal story all around and once again i think the greatest feud of all time yeah i didn't even think of that that was outstanding yeah and and it helped ta rise up and and two really like found himself he was pretty washed up as a baby face him as the the crabby resentful heel was just amazing it really was, and at the end of the day, Mr. Wrestling, it was almost like, you know, watching a, a superhero movie where at the end of the day, Mr. Wrestling 2 gets what he's had coming for a long time. Uh, all right, Pro Wrestling Match of the Year. Now, it's different with Pro Wrestling Illustrated. If there was a major title change, that's probably going to get Match of the Year. Uh, it has to be a big, big match with lots of eyeballs on it. The Observer is simply, what did you think was the best match? So using both of those criteria, Max, what do you think was Observer Match of the Year and Pro Wrestling Illustrated Match of the Year? Well, for for 
PWI, I mean, I'm trying. What do you remember what they what they gave it to? I'm interested to see if this is what I uh, what I picked. Flair and Kerry at Texas Stadium got the Pro Wrestling Illustrated, and the Observer gave the Von Erichs and the Freebirds uh, July Fourth, nineteen eighty four, that their match of the year. Yeah, I mean, you know, for for PWI type, I mean, even if, even if you just want to talk about it in terms of you know, was it great or was it significant, you know. You could potentially argue for you know Hogan beating Iron Sheik because of everything that branched off from there. Uh, otherwise, you know Flair, you know Kerry beating Flair at Texas Stadium, you know was the momentousness of the event. You know Von Erich's Freebirds in the cage in Fort Worth, uh, Slaughter and Iron Sheik in the boot camp match, um, and then you know there were a lot of matches that were great that you know really we didn't get to we didn't get to see like. Uh, maybe it's out there on, on video, but I've heard about Flair and Steamboat at the Meadowlands, but I've never actually seen it. I was there live, and I came away th- saying it was the greatest match I'd ever seen in my life. And then yeah. I start getting the Observer, and I start reading that hey, it wasn't that good a match for Flair Steamboat. Yeah, there, there's a lot. It's hard to hard to peg it, but there, there's candidates all over the place. You know, Rock and Roll Express and, and Midnight Express had a bunch of great matches together. Um, hard to put your finger on just one, but you know there was like picking winners here without actually picking a winner. It's kind of hard to peg it, but maybe Von Erich's Freebirds in the cage overall, but you know, maybe the boot camp match or the carries win over flair uh, or Hogan's win over iron Sheik is a more PWI thing. I can see that Steve. What do you think from both a uh, pro wrestling illustrated, which is kind of the biggest match of the year. And then the observer, like what was just the best match you saw in 1984? I think the uh, from the PWI uh, aspect, I would go with the carry over Flair, and also like a runner-up would be Hogan over Sheik. But from my point of view, the best match would have been the Slaughter Sheik boot camp match from MSG. All right, and I have seen that match. It was an exceptional match by WWF standards. I mean, easily one of their top 10 matches of the decade. Um, now, Pro Wrestling Illustrated version of the award, I'm going with Kerry versus Flair. No, it was not a good match at all in the ring, but it was a significant match. I mean, Kerry had finally you know, risen up, and one of the Von Erichs had finally won the NWA championship, and and the atmosphere at, at Texas Stadium was just electric. I mean, you know, fans were crying at ringside. I mean, you know, the dream had finally arrived. So I'm happy to go with that. In ring match of the year, I'm like, okay, no questions asked. Ric Flair versus Bruiser Brody had a 60-minute draw in St. Louis that just blew my socks off. Let me check the date of that match. Oh, it was Feb- February, February 1985. Oh, okay. <laughs> so, spoiler, what might be my pick for match of the year in 1985, but I can't take that one for 1984. So, uh, that, that one, I believe, is available on YouTube if you want to check it out. Uh, let me see. Sergeant Slaughter against the Sheik at Madison Square Garden uh, deserves a mention. Hulk Hogan and the Iron Sheik had a really good match at the Philadelphia Spectrum, December 1984. This one jumped off the charts at me. Uh, Kerry had a really good title defense against Ric Flair, a rematch in Dallas. And then he had a really good match defending against Terry Gordy in Fort Worth. But ultimately, I agree with the Observer, the uh, Von Erichs versus the Freebirds, 4th of July, 1984, gets match of the year for me. 
it was even better than their match from July 4th, 1983. And I've had people say, wait a minute. You're telling me that a match with rookie Mike Von Erich in it instead of David Von Erich was a better match? Yes, I am. I can't explain it, but Mike held up his end in the brawl. Not that there was anything wrong with David, but it was a better match than the 1983 match. It was, you know, easily match of the year 1984 once I figured out that Flair Brody was a different year. Anyway... (laughs) All right, best weekly TV show, uh, no Pro Wrestling Illustrated. The Observer went with New Japan Pro Wrestling, which is not eligible. Uh, Max, who did you have? Uh, Gold medal, Mid-South, silver medal, World Class, bronze to Memphis. That just that sums up mine perfectly. That's exactly what I had. Uh, World Class had fantastic TV with main events. Memphis was what it was. It was an exciting 90 minutes every Saturday. But in my opinion, if, I, if you had to send me out on a deserted island with all 52 episodes of one year of any pro wrestling promotion, it's Mid-South Wrestling from 1984. Oh, yeah. Yeah, they were I, on just fire. everything made sense. You know, and they had a couple of, you know, like we were talking about, Master G shows up, an old Ernie Ladd shows up and wins the North American title. Uh, ghetto street fights, get out of here. Oh, they were doing those in 83, too. But, I mean, you know, of course, every every promotion has its imperfections. But, again, if you put gave me the Desert Island question, it's Mid-South 1984. Steve, what was your pick? Well, I will say, as a longtime fan, I would say that the Bill Watts uh, programs uh, from you know this time frame we're talking about right up until uh, the end, '87, uh, they were always the best shows, unquestionably the most exciting TV shows. But uh, as a loyal WWF fan, I would have voted for their A show, the Championship Wrestling. Uh, you know, uh, Vince uh, with originally with uh, uh, me and Gene, and then Bruno came in near the uh, in the summer months to replace him. And uh, and uh, and if it was a top three ranking, I would have Mid South second, and I would I would I would find a way to give TNT an honorable mention because when TNT began, even though it was yeah sure it was a train wreck and uh, bad in a lot of ways, I mean they had a lot of fun interesting shows. They had Lou Thez on, they had Bruno on, they had all kinds of wrestling legends in more serious settings along with the uh, hey let's go visit Chief J Strongbow on his uh, wigwam you know with <laughs> Murdoch and Adonis, so. Uh, but it was it was it can't be fun for sure. I'll tell you what the the bit with uh, Mean Gene Adonis and Murdoch walking around oh, in the classic. Bowery, <laughs> uh, that that makes TNT worth it there on its go. own. And and at least with Championship Wrestling, you know, even though it was really just pretty much a squash show, you know, they were signing guys left and right. So you know, you would turn it on, and every other week there'd be some guy that you'd read about in the magazines. Yeah, it was up. cool. Max, you, you took the words right out of my mouth. The, the Adrian Adonis, Dick Murdoch, and Gene Okerlund walking around the Bowery bit was so funny, and it really showed you <laughs> what an incredible talent Adrian Adonis was because uh, he, none of this was planned. He was, he was improving all of this. You know, talking about how he's got the world record for touching manhole covers and walking up to some old drunk. Hey, this is my my Uncle Joe. Say hi to Uncle Joe. And it was, <laughs> stuff like that was it was it was crazy funny. And then we it get to great. Butcher Rashawn's wedding. <laughs> 
Oh, yes, another another high low moment. <laughs> I thought I thought it was funny, but you're right. I see the the high low like oh my god, this is what wrestling has turned into. All right, promotion of the year. Uh the Observer went with New Japan. Pro Wrestling Illustrated does not have promotion of the year. Max, who did you go with? I think if we're uh you know just talking about who had the most entertaining TV show, the one that I keep wanting to see. I would go with Mid-South. You know, you could argue the WWF because of the way it changed the entire industry, but you know, to me Mid-South gets the gets the All win. right, Steve, what did you have for promotion of the year? Well, you know, this this uh, great podcast of yours, John, that we primarily seem to focus on the WWF and and I think we, you and I both said that 1984 was really the most interesting year in their history. I I think it was and so just for that reason alone for all the good and all the bad, I'll, I'll go with WWF. All right, I can see that. Now, my answer is, you know, I found Mid-South to be the most entertaining promotion out there by a long shot. But if we're talking promotion of the year, it's WWF or nothing. I mean, you know, here is a promotion that, you know, they're on MTV. They're, they're, Hulk Hogan is on the cover of major non-wrestling magazines. They're, they're getting, you know, mainstream coverage. They're selling out all over the place. They're on Saturdays. They're having, you know, up to six shows on a Saturday and you know and it was all building up to bigger things to come like Saturday night's main event in WrestleMania I mean I don't know who else you could take for just promotion of the year it's like okay you know this baseball player is my favorite player to watch but you know the the real MVP the real player of the year is whoever you know that's a good point very good point best on interviews the observer Goes with Jimmy Hart. The Pro Wrestling Illustrated does not have one. Max, who did you have as best on interviews? No lack of choices in 1984. Uh, you know, thought about Jimmy Hart, Hogan, Lawler, Michael Hayes, Dusty Rhodes, even uh, you know my favorite guilty pleasure, the Boogie Woogie Man. But I went with Cornette. You know, he helped. He was one of the big things that lit the match to set Mid South on fire that year. I agree. I have Jim Cornette as my number one. Steve, who did you take best on interviews? Uh, to me, it, it has to be either Piper or Albano. And just for the, the local localized interviews, I would go with Albano. He was just uh, off the charts. And this is his final year as a heel manager, and he made the most of it. Albano's a good pick. You have to talk about Hogan here. Hogan, his job was to talk you into the building, and he did it. Now, the counter-argument is he might have already had you going to the matches before he did that local promo talking about what he was going to do to Paul Orndorff or or David Schultz, but he's got to be mentioned. Whether you like him or not, people loved his act. Honorable mention, Roddy Piper, of course. Ted DiBiase was a phenomenal interview. Jerry Lawler deserves a, a, a shout-out. Ric Flair, of course. Michael Hayes kept it fresh and world-class somehow, at least a little bit. Bill Watts does not get enough credit for the interview he was. I thought he was one of the best talkers in wrestling history. I don't care what Bill Watts says. He would have made a great NWA champion. Uh, but ultimately, to me, it goes to Jim Cornette. I mean, he could talk you into a building. The 
opposite way Hulk Hogan could. Jim Cornette could talk you into buying a ticket to see Jim Cornette's ass get kicked, and which was so richly deserved. He was such a despicable heel in Mid-South. I'm, I'm going with Jim Cornette once again. So, again, no lack of candidates. There are a lot of good talkers in the wrestling business in 1984. Fine, uh, tag team of the year. The Observer went with the Road Warriors. Pro Wrestling Illustrated went with the Road Warriors. Max, using both those criteria, who are you going with? I went with the Road Warriors just because it was just something so different. I mean, granted, they, they were so new. They came in in 83, but still, you know, they had a look and an aura that few teams had, and they just mowed over and destroyed their competition you know, they were in demand everywhere, uh, you know, not just in their home promotion, first Georgia, then the AWA. So uh, I'm going with them. You know, Midnight Express, Rock and Roll Express were great. I loved Adonis and Murdoch, but Road Warriors. All right, Steve, who did you take for Tag Team of the Year 1984? Uh, just because they were still green, I, I don't feel right giving it to the Road Warriors. Uh, uh, really, as somebody that's looked at the history of WWF, especially the 70s and the 80s, you know, other than Wyndham and Rotundo, I think Adonis and Murdoch were about the the best you know working team we ever had. I mean, as far as their in ring ability, which was outstanding, two two guys could really work matches and draw heat in the matches too. So just based on that alone, I'll, I'll give it to Adonis and Murdoch. All right. For my Tag Team of the Year 1984, using Pro Wrestling Illustrated criteria, it's the Road Warriors. They were the Andre the Giant of tag teams. You could put them in a main event in a major arena and you would draw tickets. And most tag you know, tag teams were kind of established as a mid-card act, but not the Road Warriors. They were a step above and would remain so for many years. Using, you know, just the best in-ring in-ring tag team, it's close. But at the end of the day, the Rock and Roll Express and Adrian Adonis and Dick Murdoch were just a little bit behind the Midnight Express. And I agree, Steve, that Adrian Adonis and Dick Murdoch were the best tag team the WWF fans had ever seen. They would do things, you know, that were just so sleight of hand, like they would cheat so well they did such a good job at cheating and doing things behind the referee's back in a way that wasn't obvious like oh this referee's an idiot uh but i am going with the midnight express and i i hope throughout this recording i have not overpraised jim Cornette and the midnights but then again they were so great it's hard not to oh they were a great team and they remain so, even after Dennis left in early 87. All right, uh, most outstanding wrestler, uh, which means it's kind of a, it's an observer award, just the best overall pro wrestler in the world. Max, who did you have? I went with Flair, uh, just because, you know, he was still a touring champion, um, you know, still had to go into these different territories, make the local guy look strong, uh, yet still come away with the title. You know, to me, Teddy Biasi was also very good, um, you know, Ricky Steamboat, but Flair was the guy that was going, you know, night in, night out, all over the place, facing all these different people and and just shining uh, in the ring because he knew how to work. I'm glad you mentioned Ted DiBiase because Ted DiBiase, I, I think, does not get enough credit for his heel work in Mid-South and Georgia. Uh, you know, 1982 until the end of 1985, he was one. He was the best heel I'd, I'd ever seen in my life. I mean, he 
was he, he wasn't even mean spirited. He just didn't care. Like you know, he'd take you out the way I'd take it a mosquito that landed on my shoulder. Just bop. Not didn't even think about it. Steve, who did you have for most outstanding wrestler? Well, I'll give it to to Flair also, just because he was like a machine out there. I mean, no other wrestler could have a 60-minute match as easily as he could. I mean, yeah, he, he had his formula, like, but most wrestlers do. It, but he, he had so much energy, and, and he, you know, the legend of his, uh, you know, late-night stuff and the parties and the goings-on, it mm-hmm. never slowed him down. He was like a machine. But I, I just wanted to, to dovetail into your comment about DiBiase. You know, I always cringe when I read these online comments from people that say, oh, I love the Million Dollar Man. Oh, he was the greatest heel. Oh, you know, I, I just wish that we had gotten the Ted DiBiase that, that you guys are discussing on this show from Georgia. If we had gotten him even for a year in the WWF, I mean, we would have been so spoiled. I mean, he was so effective as a wrestling heel. He didn't have to play a cartoonish character with a goofy outfit that Vince made for him. I mean, he could have been just a fantastic heel, but we'll never know. You know what, though? Like, I mean, he, you know, a lot of people ask, oh, who, who else could have been the million-dollar million man the same way people ask, okay, who could have, you know, if Hulk Hogan didn't get into wrestling, like, who would Vince have used? It's like, you know, Ted DiBiase was perfect as a million-dollar man. Now, I loved the gimmick. And you're right. I'm, I'm actually glad we got to see, like, kind of two Ted DiBiases. The, more, actually, more than that, you got the babyface Ted DiBiase, who was great, the heel Ted DiBiase, who I think is the greatest heel of all time, and then we have the Million Dollar Man. But for most outstanding wrestler for me, it's Ric Flair by a long way. You know, the joke going around in the 80s was the total package was not Lex Luger. It was Ric Flair, and it was. He had the charisma. He was the best in-ring wrestler performer in the world, and he was a great interview. But oh, and he was reliable. He always got to his matches. What else could you ask for? And finally, Wrestler of the Year. The Observer gave it to Ric Flair. The Pro Wrestling Illustrated also gave it to Ric Flair. Max, using you know to the two separate criteria, who is your Wrestler of the Year for 1984? Well, if I've understood this correctly, because we uh, we chatted about this uh, ahead of time, you know, think of uh, most outstanding wrestler as the most technically talented wrestler, but the Wrestler of the Year is really the MVP, and with that criteria. Uh, it's Hulk Hogan all the way because I don't know how the WWF expands the way it does and has the success it had with somebody else in that spot. I'll tell you what, I have more to say on that in just a moment, but Steve, I want to get you, who is Wrestler of the Year 1984? Well, um, I'll base it on this criteria. If someone had come up to me and said, what do you remember about 1984 pro wrestling? Like, like what can you remember? Uh, these are the things that stood out to me. Frankie Williams on Piper's Pit, Roddy Piper slapping Lord Alfred Hayes on TNT, Roddy Piper hitting Snooker with a coconut, the MTV shows, the emergence of uh, Piper versus Hogan as a main feud in the WWF. So just because he made it entertaining for us heel fans, I got to go with Piper. I mean, he wasn't the worker Flair was. He wasn't. He probably wasn't even the worker Hogan was. But uh, Piper got eyes on the product, and there wouldn't have been a WrestleMania without Piper because you needed a heat machine, and he did all that. So I give him my vote. I remember when Piper slapped Lord Alfred Hayes on TNT. It was, it was one of those, like, wow, I wasn't expecting that <laughs> moment. 
And then Piper comes back like three weeks later and he just like smiles at Lord Alfred Hayes and hey, how's your face? <laughs> so that was like the greatest heel thing in the world to do. Um, if you're going by by Pro Wrestling Illustrated standards, I can see the argument over Ric Flair, Ric Flair over Hulk Hogan because it's kayfabe, and you can say, okay, Rick, Rick defends the NWA Championship every night against you know so many different opponents in so many different territories. His resume is more uh, is better than than Hulk Hogan's. I can see that. And for using PWI, I'm actually going to go with Ric Flair, a a hair over Hulk Hogan. But I mean, if you want to use, to me, you know, real world uh, criteria for Wrestler of the Year, my God, it's Hulk Hogan by a long, long, long shot. I mean, he th- there was no su- no substitution. If you know, if McMahon had tried to expand with Kerry Von Erich or Hacksaw Jim Duggan, yeah, it might have worked, but it wouldn't have worked as well. Um, again, you know, I, I don't mean to overpraise Hogan, but you know, the business changed so much, and he was, you know, people say, oh, he was the biggest star since Gorgeous George. No, Gorgeous George was never as big a star as Hulk Hogan, and Hogan had established himself as you know someone who really was almost bigger than the wrestling business in 84 so i've got to go with hulk hogan any any final thoughts from you max no i I think you summed it up well i mean to me hogan was you know i think we've talked it's been talked to death over however many years it's been and there's never an adequate replacement for hogan if he's if he isn't the guy you really have to go with him in the spot and and flair was great and carrie was great but to me it's got yeah i mean it's a good question that you know really might have been asked too many times well if not hogan who but if you really think about it it's like you know yeah again it might have worked but it would not have worked so well steve any final thoughts on wrestler of the year from you uh, the only final thought would be uh, I did look at the record book and Hogan's records of this year and Flair's records. I mean, Flair um, did an incredible job I mean, with all the hour matches, and he went to all kinds of like small, uh, out-of-the-way places. Like, uh, let me see, I got my notepad here. So he went to Singapore, Hong Kong, New Zealand, uh, Malaysia, Puerto Rico, Virgin Islands, Barbados, Trinidad, Bahamas. I mean, he went all over the places like that. But to the benefit of Hogan, Hogan did a, a bunch, maybe four or five tours of Japan uh, in the earlier part of the year. And he was doing that big uh, series of matches with Anoki and, and teaming up uh, against Anoki's teams and stuff. So I, I think, um, in my opinion at least, I think Hogan was a bigger star in Japan than Flair was. But uh, I got to give Flair credit due for all the trips he made to all the other parts of the world where the NWA title still meant a lot. Hogan was way bigger than Flair in Japan, um, even with Ric Flair as NWA champion. Something jumped into my head, Steve, as you were speaking. Like, if I was using, you know, PWI criteria, you know, okay, they're both world champions, but Flair defends against, you know, the top guys from six territories. The other counter-argument was, okay, you know, Ric Flair went to one-hour draws and he'd keep his title by DQ. Hulk Hogan would go out and win his matches, which is what he was supposed to do. I'm, I'm still going with Flair, but like I said, that jumped into my head. 
Max and Steve, uh, we've been doing this for a while. I really appreciate both of you taking the time. It, it ran longer. The recording ran longer than I expected. I want to thank both of you for hanging in there. Oh, thanks for having me. Glad to do no, it. And, you know, like I said, you know, this is a big show to me, and I specifically wanted to have you on as a guest. So thank you. Uh, Steve, oh, thanks. Very much. Hey, no thanks. problem. And, you know, I hope to have you back on soon. Steve, thank you again for everything that, that you do for, for Stick to Wrestling. Oh, it's my pleasure. And I want to, it was so great to meet Max. Uh, I've heard him on the show many times. I thought he was outstanding today, especially. And it was great to have him on the show. It definitely was. Yeah, yeah. I've only uh, ever known you. I mean, I've heard your voice for a while, but I've never actually uh, seen you or interacted, even though we've in person, even though we have on on various message boards and Facebook groups for years. So good to meet you in in person, so to speak. Thanks, Max. Really good to meet you. And uh, and John, take it away. Well, all right. It's been an extra long, extra large uh, two episodes of Stick to Wrestling. I thought they were both outstanding. I want to thank everyone for listening. I want to thank uh, Brian Last for giving us this forum here on Stick to Wrestling, part of the Arcadian Vanguard Network. I want to thank Lou Kippelman for all the great work he does producing Stick to Wrestling and just being a good guy, being there, you know, like, hey, Lou, can you record at this time? Oh, sure. You know, 90% of the time. So I'm grateful to him. I want to thank everyone for listening i hope you enjoyed these two episodes i look forward to doing them every year uh pretty soon we're going to be doing like 1976 my god (laughs) we're old (laughs) and uh yeah so again thank everyone for listening and this has been a production of the arcadian vanguard podcast network this concludes our podcast day